welcome to the restart of the Biota Podcast. One of the really fun things about doing these Biota Podcasts again is having the opportunity to chat to folks that I haven't talked with for many years. But before I introduce my guest, Biotacast, all one word, dot org, is the new location for the podcast. I have been tweeting about it in the past week. If you're on Twitter and you would like other folks to discover this podcast, please go to biotacast.org. Find one of your favourite recordings. It could be a historical recording. It could even be with my guest today, Jeffrey Ventrella. And please tweet out to other folks so people can discover about this resource, which has actually been there since about 2006. Long, long time. But today, not only am I welcoming on Jeffrey Ventrella, I'm also welcoming on Brian Dodd as well. Jeffrey, it has been an inordinately long time since we've had the chance to chat. How would you introduce Brian to the biota podcast listening audience yes well uh gosh brian i met brian when uh soon after i moved to san francisco my first job was at rocket science games and brian was there i think when i when i arrived and i got there to help to help the company make um simulation style games after they had uh a not a very successful attempt at making games that were a blend of films and uh sort of cinematic combining cinematic techniques with with gaming rocket science games was the sillywood revolution silicon valley meets hollywood they they got write-ups in in uh, wired magazine and everything they were they were supposed to be the next big thing yeah and uh the, the joke they used to say is that they were on the wired list in wired magazine and then i think the next issue they were on the tired list <laughs> but anyway so they said oh let's make some simulation style games so we started working on that, and Brian and I worked on a game called Darwin Pond. We mm-hmm. worked on some other games as well, but Darwin Pond was, of course, the precursor for Gene Pool, which then became the precursor for Wiglet. So it's this whole evolution, as it were, of of games that we've been involved with. Je- Jeffrey was the brains, and I was the muscle. I was I was there to kind of help him do the the lower level programming and the Windows stuff and get the stuff up and running. So. Yeah, way back in the old days, the 90s. Good to know, good to know. So, Jeffrey, we haven't talked since probably about 2012, maybe even earlier. In yes. terms of, I mean, I think when we last talked, you had a Kickstarter, you had Peck Peck, and let's talk a little bit about Gene Paul, though. Let's talk about Gene Paul from when we talked maybe six, seven years ago to what you're planning with Gene Paul 2020. Yeah, well... Last I talked to you, I think it was on my list to to get back to it and, and do some more with it, extend it out, because uh, I had I think I was at version six by the time we talked, and all that time I haven't done anything with it until very recently. Um, and the main reason was because I was focusing on Wiggle Planet, which in a sense is like a 3D extended version of Gene Pool that has a lot more potential for gaming and so on, which is which uh so that's more than six years of of work on wiggle planet wiggle planet still exists as a website and we're building things on it and so we're hoping to revive it at at some point soon with uh lots of stuff so gene pool had been uh latent for a while but now what i'm doing is i'm porting the entire thing to the web Mm. so um and that should that way people can just jump right in and start playing with it without any download or anything. So what does that technically mean associated with porting it to the web? It means rewriting all of the code in JavaScript 
Mm. That's basically what it means. It was originally written in C++ as a Windows uh, application. So um, mm -hmm. had a lot of built-in assumptions. Yeah. And then um, moving it over to the Macintosh required taking the C++ code and kind of refactoring it and then wrapping that in a um, – was Obje Objective-C was – no, that was iOS, I believe. Anyway. No, Objective-C for the Mac as well. For the Mac, yeah. So that was a that was a part of the uh, part of the evolution of it. So now it's in it's all in in JavaScript, and I'm and I'm still working on it, and it should be out uh, by 2020, early 2020. And in terms of the web interface, is it just a web page that people can go to and interact with? I mean, what what by your definition makes it for the web? Uh, yes, it's it's in a web page. It runs in a web page. I would imagine that uh, there are many ways to. Um, Take uh, the the JavaScript code and have it running in on mobile and, and various other other forms because JavaScript is evolving very rapidly uh, in many directions and so I think there will be lots of different ways to see it and interact with it. I mean, do you foresee it being like a service potentially where you have a, a visual client and then you have the you know the simulation running in the cloud so people could potentially have vast a vast gene pool where they were only viewing small portions, but putting their their wrigglers back in at various stages. I mean, do you see that as being a potential interface? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I, I definitely would like to see uh, a, a social aspect, a multiplayer aspect, and some persistence. As far as having the simulation running on a server, that's another question because of the, of, you know, the latency Issues, although you know you could run uh, the simulation invisibly in the background and having things breeding, you know. So the, yeah, there are little, there are lots of possibilities. But I think initially I would like to have just sort of a portal so people can share genetics of their of their creatures and share uh, pool uh, pool configurations and so on. The original gene pool. Um, I don't know if you've had an opportunity to play with it, but it of has course, yeah yeah, no, yeah a long a long opportunity. I yeah. had a lot of fun with it. Cool. And so it had this concept where you could actually um, save a particular creature and its attributes out as a text file uh, and then transfer that whatever you ways you saw fit to another platform and then import that creature into that. Um, yeah, of course, that was before the Internet was really an, a viable option. So having some sort of a, a marketplace for showing off or exchanging wiglets or you know, life forms uh, that have been bred yeah. uh, on your own platform uh, is definitely a, a goal at some point. And, I mean, the benefit of writing it in JavaScript now is you can make a Node.js server yeah. for it, right? So sure. you're moving in the right direction. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And also I found that um, developing on iOS, there's just so much overhead in terms of dealing with Apple and all of the all of the uh, all of the the difficulties and hoop jumping that's required for that, and JavaScript just seems like a, a breath of fresh air after doing that. So let's talk a little bit about Wiggle Planet because certainly I think when we last spoke, maybe you had the seed of the idea for Wiggle Planet, but you've been working on it over the past you know six plus years. What what does Wiggle Planet look like for for listeners? They can go to WigglePlanet.com and download the apps. And I would say that f about four of the apps are functioning. Some of them that use Vuforia augmented reality plugin, 
um, are not functioning at the moment, so I should take them down off the web or get them working again. But I think the most important one is one called Wiglet Hatchery, which is the one that actually uh, sort of has a Pokemon Go aspect to it, which I developed before Pokemon Go came out, I like to remind people. <laughs> uh, um, but it's uh, you, you can actually go out and use geolocation to find Wiglets and drop them into – pick them up in a sense and put them into your app and breed them and then dump them back into the world for others to find. So it's like a breedable Pokemon Go in a sense. So certainly when I have met folks, I described probably in a similar time frame, maybe even 2011, when I saw you with an AR version of Pack. Mm. which was wonderful to see because you basically had the vision there for the augmented reality kind of revolution that came Pokemon Go et al. So mm. it's interesting that Wiggle Planet is just an extension of that. And, the, and the, the Wigglers live out in the real world. You go and discover them in the real world and then you capture them through that interface. Yeah. Yeah. They, you know, at the moment I, I, I uh, didn't have the resources to build a whole, you know, gigantic simulation so at the moment, a Wiglet is sitting at a particular geolocation until somebody finds it. Mm. And when, once they sort of kind of vivify it in their, in their mobile app, uh, it becomes alive and you can play with it and breed them and drop them, drop them back into the world. But ultimately, uh, you know, it would be great to have a, a honking server somewhere that's ha- having these Wiglets moving around in the world autonomously. That's sort of the ultimate goal. Certainly, I haven't been in contact with you over this period of time, but what has happened with standardized AR through this period of time? I mean, obviously, Apple and Google both jumped on the bandwagon associated with AR. Yeah. Is, is it standardized now in some regard? Uh, that's a very good question because the, uh, the, uh, you know, the chaotic, uh, nature of, uh, this, this technology, <laughs> which I don't know if it's, you can still call it nascent or not, but it's gone through so many, changes that it's hard to you know keep track so what one ar technology is replaced by another one and and you know it's having to keep up with it that's the nature of being on the bleeding edge but but you know it is stabilizing and becoming more standard and easier to develop in fact brian is working on uh, a unity uh kind of hub for all the wiggle planet code which is going to enable vr and ar and all and everything else yeah what what i started doing it's been about two years ago um been interrupted by life events mm-hmm. along the way but uh I'm, I'm definitely working more on it now um is to take the code base that was used for a lot of the different wiggle planet applications like peck garden and uh uh, what did some of the other the hatchery and things yeah. like that? They each had their own independent code base that was just mm. started off, uh, you know, as a copy of the original one and then modified and then kind of bred like that. So I took um, I created a common code base which I call the Wiggle Engine uh, to uh, incorporate all that low level code for generating the uh, the physiology and the genetics of the creatures and their expression and, and uh, the uh, behavioral things created a C++ code base and then developed the ability to either build that into a Unity plugin, uh, which I've used for, dude, I did a Gear VR app using that. Um, which is very awesome. Yeah. And um, had it running. And on, an HTC Vive. Yeah. I had it running on the Vive also. 
I'm going to get back to that. But then another thing you can do with that code base, which is what I'm doing right now, is uh, use something called Inscripten that compiles the C++ into JavaScript mm-hmm. and then uh, can be loaded up as a as a web app. And so I'm right now I'm reviving Pepex Garden as a web app or as a web page uh, based on the Wiggle engine. And then uh, I will be going back to working more on Unity once I get that going. So it's kind of an iterative process. But the idea is to uh, get some synergy going, get get a common code base that can be evolving and everything can uh, can live off of that and build off of that. So Speaking of this kind of stuff, and I don't want this to get too political here, but thoughts on open source associated with these components? Well, I, I would say um, our thoughts on open source is that it's great for certain things that uh, have a common usage that are tool-oriented, things that are IP that, that could be used for commercial use uh, that have certain value, artistic value. Open source is, is not necessarily the best option for that. What we like to think is that that we have a core of IP that um, is not open source, but then everything else is open source so that people can build ecosystems around the IP. So have kind of having a combination, which I think a lot of businesses are doing anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, provide a, a structure mm-hmm. and tutorials and examples for building your own uh, possible like Unity plugins using this or ex- using the Wiggle engine to generate the Wigglets, but then incorporating them in your own games, uh, things of that nature. To be clear, you guys currently aren't doing any of this open source? No. Nope. Do you foresee moving some of it open source in strategy terms or no? Yeah, well, you know, like I was saying, we, we would like to have parts of it open source. In fact, part of the idea of Wiggle Planet is to build the IP, which includes all the physics, the genetics, the, the AI behavior, and and then to um, include a pretty extensive API that people can use to build entire games. And what Brian is building right now is a system where, you know, the Unity engine, for instance, can be used, which is very widely used right now, or for that matter, uh, JavaScript front, front end. And just plop in the the uh, what do you call it the core engine. Mm-hmm. It is interesting that you the the problems you describe, particularly maintaining you know AR standards as they continue to evolve and move in different directions. You almost need a, a passionate open source community that is willing to maintain that portion, with the view that your core IP is obviously still protected. Do you get a sense of these tools? Evolving. I mean, do you get a sense that there is a community of folks that want to be writing AR, VR stuff with all the latest? I mean, is there a community doing this work that you could just plug into at some stage? Yeah, I'm sure there is. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, I personally am not active in it at the moment because, like I said, I got sidetracked for other life-changing events for a while. <laughs> um, but uh, we want – I'm trying to – get this to a point where it can be shared more widely and that we can make the engine available uh, for people to use. And then at that point, I'd love to see what other people can do with it and create it. Part of the problem with the open source, and I'm sure you're aware of this and everyone struggles with it one way or another, is that at some point we hope to monetize this. And right now it's the underpants gnomes problem, you know, where uh, 
you know, number one, write code, and number three is profit, and uh, number two still has to be worked mm-hmm. out how that's going to happen. So as appealing as putting all the code out on the uh, as an open source project and letting everybody have at it is, in a lot of senses, I we're not sure how that would fit into a monetization how how we could end up selling that. There are academic papers on gene pool, right, Jeffrey? You you've written papers. I think Marcia Komachinsky's book had gene pool in it, didn't it? Yeah, there 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 are a few a, a few papers, a handful of papers from way back and a few more recent ones, yeah. So I mean in terms of the intellectual property around gene pool specifically, it would be and I remember there was a game called Flow that looked very similar to some of your work and the fellow had also contributed to Marche's uh, uh-huh. so I mean, I guess it's interesting, the kind of intellectual property issues here, that someone could take the papers. I mean, I remember at the time looking at the papers and thinking this gives a blueprint of how to at least start gene pool. If, if there was an open source gene pool that could come out of this thing. But, well, no one, no one has built one yet. Mm. Uh, Flow, Flow had some things in common with it. And there's also, what's it called? A very nice, ambient, beautiful game. Oh, gosh, what's it called? That was their apps for it. Yes, um, I, I know what you're talking about. I can't yeah, think of the same either. That one uh, <laughs> has things in common with it, but um, I'm, I'm trying to talk, Jeffrey. And I, right now, Gene Pool is is still a, a 2D app, uh, essentially. One of the things we've been talking about, and hopefully we can go to at some point, is is to taking that to the next level, um, making it a, a 3D app and possibly mm. immersive VR experience, and cre- creating a whole ecosystem of plants and microbes and different types of creatures that live in that environment and uh, so that would be based on on the wiggle engine that we're using right now so hopefully if we ever go that route we can set it up at such a point that people can create their own types of creatures and not just Mm. not just evolve from the parameters that we have right now but it would be kind of a, a virtual fish tank where people could swim, uh, swim yeah. amongst the creatures. No, yeah. it would be a beautifully sublime environment to be able to, you know, have wigglers, you know, floating around you that you could kind of grab and force mate and, you know, force fight and all this kind of stuff. I mean, there's a potential there, a dramatic potential, particularly like with that, contemporary VR technology. I like to think of it as spore done right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, interesting, yeah. interesting. Not the interstellar travel part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, actually. When I, I went up to Berkeley last weekend and met Anton, who I've had a, a couple of chats with in this podcast series, hmm. and we both talked about Will Wright as being a local. I mean, he's physically, it's kind of equidistant between the two of uh, the, the, you know, you folk in the North Bay and me in the South Bay. But, yeah. You know, there are all these people in the Bay Area that have had some connection with these ideas and, you know, some of them have the potential to uh, be investors, luminaries, these kind of things. Anton has started an A-Life meetup in Berkeley, uh, uh-huh. which he had six, seven people attend, maybe seven to ten people attend the first one, including folks that have been on the periphery of Jeffrey and my various kind of get-togethers and things as well. So there is a kind of cr- interesting critical mass of folks in the Bay Area around these kind of ideas. And yeah. I think what is uh, particularly interesting is that there's a kind of tapestry of people that are completely proprietary, people that are completely open source, people that have done bits and pieces in both. 
And I think, yeah, it's certainly a very interesting problem associated with how these simulations continue to develop with new technology. But here's, here's an interesting point that I wanted to make here. The wonderful thing about you two is that you collaborate. And one of yeah. the things I found with my own work, and the reason that I put it open source initially, was in order to find collaborators. Can you talk a little bit about the collaboration process that you guys have obviously had over uh, many years with regards to this technology? Well, I, I would I would say that collaboration um, is true. Productive collaboration is nearly impossible unless you are working <laughs> together side by side. Interesting. Now, having said that, at least on occasion, not not on well, continuous. Not just that, but you know, Brian and I started working together in a, in a company side by side for you know for, for years, and and now we you know we do a lot of remote work, of course, but all of that remote work is built on the foundation of our of our real time chemistry and. Mm. And work. So I, I think that, you know, this also is, is, a, is something that applies to working, working in companies and, and doing other kinds of work, not just a life work or games, but anything. Um, whenever I have a new gig, I like to try to meet the people whenever I can, even if it means flying somewhere, mm. have, having a good session of time with them because you can build the chemistry and you can establish the certain uh, affordances and 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 ways that you communicate with each other that you can then abstract out to the virtual asynchronous communication world i could go on and on about this because that's very interesting my experience my experience has has historically been through the way of being i.e poor um, has been pretty opposite to that I mean, Bob, uh-huh. Bob Mottram, who worked on Noble Ape for three and a half years, every I wasn't able to travel to the UK through most of his time working on it. So I didn't even know him aside from, I think he'd appeared in a couple of Biota podcasts and I kind of knew him through that. He knew Steve Grant, you know, there were one degree of separation uh-huh. kind of things. But he worked on Noble Ape for about three years. Now, every time I go back to the UK, I look him up. And we The last time I spent four hours just chatting with him about these uh-huh. kind of things. But we worked completely... I mean, even out out of hours, eight hours, phase shifted on Noble Eight for about three and a half years. To be perfectly frank, he did a majority of the work. I just went in, fixed things, you know, pointed him in various directions, tried to kind of, you know, maintain the commit histories and these kind of things. But I think it's interesting, actually, because the kind of collaboration that I'm looking for is very similar to Bob Butler. I think co-location is just such a luxury, but obviously you've had this experience with Brian. Yeah, we live about 40 miles apart. And so we don't, I mean, we try to get together maybe once a month or, yeah. So it's not like we're, you know, spend a lot of time together, but it, it helps to, to kind of just touch base and kind of talk face to face about where we want to take particular things and work things out on a whiteboard. And uh, I mean, these are all things that can be done online. Part of it uh, is is history. I've been programming a long time and I I go back to a more face-to-face time, so maybe that works better for me. The beauty is that we have so many options now mm. for collaboration, Certainly. you know, and um, and we can mix and we can mix and match them as as we need as as necessary. So we we have a, a shared repository that we uh, use for all our code, and we uh, use uh, uh, Slack a lot to to t- to chat and share pictures and collaborate on things and yeah. uh share things through the website so uh we we certainly do our share of online uh co- you know yeah. working together so. so if i could switch it up a little bit i wanted to talk about two other projects that jeffrey's been involved with sure. the, f- the first is 
and I remember I I have one of your one of your books around associated with prime numbers, and I'm wondering mm. whether the family uh, tree of, of fractal curves is mm. an extension of that prime numbers book. But you've been working on a book associated with the family tree of fractal curves. Can we talk a little bit about that, Jeffrey? Sure. Yeah. Um, that book is. Uh... I have a draft of it right now on the Internet Archive, Family Tree of Fractal Curves. And I'm also giving a paper in Linz, Austria, in uh, at a couple of months at the um, Bridges Conference, which will have a lot of really in- amazing people there working at the intersection of math and art. And I'll be talking about my paper, which is about fractal curves, the more artistic aspects of this. But there's really a kind of a number theoretical aspect to it, which I'm very excited about. And um, it's definitely up against the edge of my expertise in math, which is, um, you know, it would be nothing like the other people at the conference, but it will be great to mix in with them and and, and to learn more from them. But yes, the, the, there are some number theory um, aspects that come from the divisor plot book about prime numbers that that is involved here. And so, you know, perhaps in the back of my mind, I've had those wheels spinning for a while, you know, other ideas pop out of that. And also, you have Bubble Tree as well, which I think is a beautiful example of making physical art out of A-life-like ideas. Can you talk a little bit about Bubble Tree? Yeah, so Bubble Tree started as a sort of an experimental algorithm that was keep, keeping me up at night thinking about it. And then I, 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 I had to start coding it to exercise it so I could get sleep. You know how that is. Most definitely. Um, and then... Um, I, it was an attempt at making uh, space-filling trees, which is something that I've experimented with many times. As as part of the process of getting it to work, uh, sometimes these really glitchy things would come out of it, and they were quite beautiful and interesting and strange. And so I, I <laughs> the funny thing is I never really got the algorithm working correctly, but it turned into this wonderful art-making algorithm. And I think what what I like about it is that the essence of a space-filling tree is there. You, it's in the same sense that you can look at an organism and see that it's trying to survive, it's trying to do what it does. You can look at these uh, images and you can see that it's trying to grow, it's trying to do things that organisms do. And that sort of implied intentionality gives these images something lifelike. And certainly – as an art installation or a series of static images here, this is something that obviously viewers are very receptive to as well. Can you talk a little bit about the, the I mean, ultimately this is kind of A-life outreach. It's bringing in people that wouldn't necessarily be A-life interested into these ideas, which, as you say, are, are fundamentally about you know simulation yeah. and these kind of things. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, the art world is, you know, definitely detached from the uh, f- from the world that I usually function in, which is, you know, um, interactive on a computer screen experiences. And I've, you know, I haven't really pushed that 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 aspect of getting my work out there in that format. Um, but there are some really wonderful things that come out of that, in that you can by by using these algorithms and and computer programming techniques. And turning them into, you know, a beautiful sensual object that's on a 40 by 40 stretched canvas and having it on a wall in a gallery, it just takes it to another place. And, you know, different kinds of conversations come out of that. Of course, they are conversations that people have in galleries, but there's a much deeper story behind it. So, So I have work right now shown at the Laurie Austin Gallery in Sebastopol. 
And um, lots of uh, people are looking at these and, and, you know, asking questions about them. So there's a lot of, you know, there's there's a whole backstory here that that gives this artwork a little extra interest. And in terms of the kind of standard art gallery, I mean, do you have cue card blurbs to give people an introduction to what these pictures have behind them? How, how do you get this conversation started? Yeah, well, at the moment, I'm leaving it up to the gallery owner because she wants to sell the work and she's got to <laughs> sell them to uh, the, the wealthy individuals who come into the gallery and um, whatever turns them on is what matters. Um, but I but I do have some ideas in mind. One thing I would like to do is to have a screen mm. showing in real time the growth of these algorithms so that people can see, uh, you know, to see to see them growing in, in their Petri dish and then to walk over to the canvas and see the canvas and, and see the final result. And what I don't know yet is whether that is the kind of experience that will make people want to purchase the art or whether they're going to want to say, oh, I want to go home and play with this, you know, <laughs> on the web, uh, which which is fine, but that's not the same thing as selling art. So, you know, how do I uh, provide these various experiences in a way to sell the work? Obviously, as you know, I'm I'm passionate about building artificial life simulations and, and fractal art, and so I would love to have people coming to the web. So, if I could have you know the best of both worlds, that would be great. I mean, one of the things that I really enjoyed about meeting you on location was having a chance to to meet Nola and getting a sense of the yes. work that she did. And I mean, I see her influence in this because, I mean, obviously she is connected with the art world. I mean, it, it, do you see that or is that just implicit in this stuff? Oh, absolutely. In fact, she's the one who got me into the gallery because she knows the gallery owner um, having having been, you know, working in the gallery circuit for so long with their ceramic sculpture so uh so so that definitely helps jeffrey ryan it has been an absolute pleasure to catch up with you today it's a pleasure to to be introduced to brian i've been in the south bay for the past eight years and we have lost contact through this period of time so my home is open to you uh if you want to travel down here and say hello i know for, for you, Jeffrey, staying overnight somewhere in these kind of journeys is, is helpful. So, yeah. I mean, please let us, uh, you know, continue to communicate. And one of the sad things about kind of concluding the Biota podcast, and when I say to people, is that we all had different gigs. The band broke up, right? We all went in our <laughs> different directions. Like, you were working at the time feverishly on Peck Peck, and Bruce Damer obviously and still is, you know, in the origins of life, Larry Yeager, you know, was doing what he was doing professionally. Uh, Gerald de Jong, similarly. So we have all these people who I was talking with very passionately up until about 2011. And then this thing kind of, you know, everyone was doing their own things. It was hard to get calls together, organize yeah. these things, but we should definitely keep in contact. And certainly my hope with these recordings is that we'll get more people together talking and get more ideas out there because the, the physical space that we're in just in the San Francisco Bay area, there are a lot of us doing this kind of work all relatively closely and to not communicate seems like yeah. we're missing opportunities here. So Yeah, absolutely. And that's why it's so great that you're bringing this podcast back. Thank you for doing mm -hmm. that. Make sure you keep an eye on uh, wiggleplanet.com. And um, I've got my own website called alternativelifeforms.com, which I'm just now starting to spin up right now. I'm basically using it as a test platform but 
and uh, we're we're working towards getting more stuff up there and, and reviving Wiggle Planet and uh, inject, yeah. injecting some new life into it. Wonderful. Stay tuned, and, and maybe we can do this again soon. Most definitely. I'm looking forward to it. It's been a real pleasure. I'll talk to you both soon. Take care. Yeah, it was great to meet you. Thanks, Tom. Bye.